Okay, welcome. Glad to see everybody here. Glad to have the Jackson family back. Hope you guys had a wonderful time. Nice and refreshed. So, all right, good, good. Okay, so tonight we're going to continue our study of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, uh, that we started Sunday uh, afternoon. To kind of do a little review of what we went over, um, like the book of 1 John, James gives a series of tests, but the tests are to prove one's genuineness of faith. So it's not a really deep theological book, it's more as a practical book that looks at some of the problems that we as Christians will face and gives us tests to see if we're actually living within the faith that Christ has given us. Um, this particular passage, chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 10, deals with the test of worldly indulgence. And we're admonished to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And there's two concepts that we defined before we got started. And one was, what does it mean to be double-minded? And we determined that that was, that we had a divided loyalty between God and the world. So a double-minded man is unstable because of this divided loyalty. He doesn't follow God completely because he still has one foot in the world and a love for the world. And we define the world as the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of the present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. It is self-centered, it is, and it has a godless value system. And remember, its goals are self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, and self-satisfaction. So, we also discovered who James was writing to, and we said for our purposes in a study, James is writing to us. Through the Holy Spirit, he was writing to those that were dispersed abroad, but for practical purposes, he is writing to us, and it is applicable to us today. Um, The idea of the first verse was there's an active hostility towards God in our members, and we, we discussed the fact that our members, that when there's this conflict there, it's with the self. We have the new nature, the new man, but we still have the self that we have to battle with. And this self causes conflict within us. And sometimes the conflict gets so out of hand that it causes us to be angry and it causes conflict with other Christians and within families and within with others in the world. And this conflict can get so bad and give us such an anger that James says, sometimes you even murder. And we discuss that, you know, a lot of times we don't murder. But there's an anger and a bitterness there that is just as sinful as murder. And then we kind of also mentioned that gossip and slander within the church is the favorite murder weapon of the self-righteous. And that with many church people and Christian people, we snipe at each other like snipers with words behind people's backs. And that can be just as deadly. And when we look inside, a lot of times we'll find a bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart. And James talks about that. Also, he told us in verse 2 that we do not have because we do not ask. We do not have because we do not ask. And then he tells us, but when you do ask, you don't get. You don't get it because you ask with the wrong motives. And we discussed that. Um, The condition of the, the believer's prayer we discussed is that believer's prayer should be for God's purposes and God's merits in the pursuit of God's glory alone. We must come to God on God's terms. 
So then we, we got to verse 5, and so let's go ahead and open our Bibles to James 4, and we're going to go ahead and read those 10 verses again, and then I'll try and pick up a little bit from where we left off last time. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says to no purpose he jealously desires the spirit whom he's made to dwell in us? He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. We spent most of our time camped out on verse 5. What it means to be a friend of the world. And we've determined that we're in particular danger of being friends of the world here in America. We kind of said that we are in the Disneyland of countries. Everything that we have is at our fingertips. We can order basically anything that's made. We have disposable income. We have leisure time. We have hobbies. We have all sorts of things that the rest of the world would love to have. And by the world standards, we are rich. And because we are rich, we are in danger. Because it is so easy to see the things of the world and to crave the things of the world in which James is warning us against. <clears throat> Excuse me. So remember the warnings that uh, the Bible has given us. Remember, we read Matthew 19, 23, 20 through 25, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we also discussed that rich men, and like most Americans, do not see the need for God. We're self-sufficient. So we go through our lives thinking, I have all that I need. And like King Nebuchadnezzar, look at the glory of what I've built. Whether it be a small house, a large house, we're proud of what we've built, we're proud of what we've done, and we love to congratulate ourselves. We love to cling to our self-sufficiency. The other warning in Matthew 13, 22 and the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfaithful. The double-minded man has his loyalty divided between God and the world. And we are warned time and again, time and again, against it. So it says in verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And what does it mean to be a friend of the world? If your aim in life is to enjoy this world, 
then you're an enemy of God. If our chief concern is placed in its ways of life that do not follow the standards established by God for his people, then we're friends of the world and we're in danger. And we always need to keep this at the forefront of our mind because it is so easy to slip into it. So we discovered, how do I know if I'm a friend of the world? And we asked, where is our refuge? Where do we go in times of trouble? Where do we go when we're tested? Do we go to our knees and to the word of God? Do we go to our Christian friends? Or do we go to what the world says? Do we go to the self-help books? Do we go to the psychologists? Do we go online and discover what we need to do for a certain problem? Where is our refuge? Where is our allegiance? So finally, we asked last time what God demands of us. And we read Matthew 22, 36-40 about the most important commandment being to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. 1 John 2, do not love the world. Matthew 6, 25, seek first the kingdom of God. And Luke 9, 23, deny yourself. These are the things that God demands of us. So after that review, we'll begin. And of course, I had to pick a, a scripture that had the most contested, um, well, no, I guess what I could say is there is no general consensus on what verse 5 actually says when it's translated. And uh, so let's look at verse 5. James tells us, Or do you not think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he's made to dwell in us? And that's the translation of the New American Standard. Some of the other versions translated differently. Obviously, I'm not going to come up with an answer here. So... The best I can do and the best I can give to you is kind of give a summary, three different things that most scholars have a consensus that it means. First, it says that the Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us opposes our envy. The Holy Spirit that God places in us, the Holy Spirit that we as all Christians have, that opposes envy, and that's true. We have the Spirit within us, and thank goodness he does, so when we start to go off the path, the Spirit comes to us and goes, no. And if we continue going down the path, the Spirit says, I need, I really mean no. And then if we keep going down the path, God will discipline us. So the Spirit in us opposes our envy. But it could also mean that God is passionate that the Spirit he placed within us should be faithful, and that Spirit is a small-ass Spirit. That's the spirit that God gave us when we became alive. It's the spirit of all men, and we should be faithful to God. To me, that's the weakest one, but it's true nevertheless. And finally, that the spirit that God has placed within us, our natural man, is filled with envy. And again, that is true. So all three ways of looking at this really are true. And there is no place where it says the scriptures say this, that we can look to the Old Testament and find it. So most Bible scholars believe that it's kind of a, you know, a general wrapping up of what all scripture would be. If you, know, if you were to read the scripture, you would understand that this is a principle in your life. So I'm sorry, that's the best I can do with that. But all three are true. All three are true. So the takeaway is, don't ignore the scriptures. 
God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with anybody. So when we're reading the scriptures, we take the scriptures seriously. So, last time got kind of serious, and, and I meant to get serious. Because God is a holy God, and it's a lot of time in America and in the American church, we just kind of play fast and loose with God, and we've identified ourselves as Christians, and we have our Christian friends, but sometimes because of the freedom that we have as Christians, we, we forget that our worship needs to be genuine, and it needs to have a healthy dose of the fear of God. Yes, God loves us, and we love God. Yes, God is wonderful when we commune with him and we feel his presence and he speaks to us through the scriptures and through the preached word. It's wonderful, but he's still God. We need to remember that. And God doesn't mess around. I was thinking about Lot's wife. You know, when God gives us a command and we ignore it, there's some disastrous consequences. And what's the thing that Lot's wife did? Sodom and Gomorrah. She loved it. She loved living there. She loved living in Sodom. She has to leave Sodom. And God says, don't look back. Don't look back. You're gone. I'm God. I'm saving you. I'm going to take you from here. And we go forward. And she looked back. Did God turn her to a pillar of salt? This is the same God. God takes seriously his commands and our obedience. Or what about the nation of Israel? They come out, they see all these miracles of God. God brings them out with plagues in Egypt and feeds them in the desert, water coming from a rock, and they want to go back to slavery. They love their slavery more than they loved God. I think that's the same idea that we're dealing with here. When we're lovers of the world, even when the world is a world of slavery, the Hebrews wanted to go back. And we're much the same way. Those of us that, that come to Christ and we start living, living a new life, but we see our old friends, oh, they're having fun. And they're doing the things the world's under. Oh, man, don't you miss having fun with us? And we miss the world. And we want to go back. And we think, well, you know, God's a God of love. He'll forgive. It's a dangerous thing to presume upon God's forgiveness. It's a very dangerous thing. And I'm very guilty of it. And I imagine some of well, all of us are. You do not presume upon the blood of Christ. It is a precious gift that set us free. But the temptation is always there. And when does it happen? It always happens when we're not paying attention. It always happens when we let our guard down, when we're not having our quiet time, when we're not spending time in the Word, when we're, for some reason or another, not able to go to church and have the Word preached to us. And during this time of weakness, we want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to look back on Sodom. So, we need to be very careful. But the good news is in verse 6. Verse 6 says, But he gives greater grace. Amen for the greater grace. God's grace is greater than the power of sin. It's greater than the flesh. It's greater than the world. It's greater than Satan. Ephesians six twelve tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against the world forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So we have a battle, not only against Satan, the world, and James says, of course, our own members. And then remember Romans 5.20. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's wonderful news. Because God gives the greater grace. Because what we are asked to do, if we were left to do it in our own strength, is impossible. In our own strength, we would all be like Lot's wife, looking back. In our own strength, we would all be like the Hebrews, wanting to go back to what we know and what our flesh loves. Because our flesh sometimes aches for the things of the world. And our battles are hard. Our spiritual battles are are hard. It also says later in verse 6, uh, he gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's all throughout the Bible. That's in fact a quote from Proverbs 3.34 and it's quoted in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. So what is the proud? When he says, God is opposed to the proud, the proud is the disdainful and arrogant one who supposes himself above others, boastful, self-satisfied, and worships himself. He's the one that gives the haughty look. Oh, look at these. Look at these idiots. See, this is where I told you last, on Sunday, I was preaching to me. This is so easy for me to fall into. So I have colleagues. And unfortunately, we have to do work with people that are very difficult. And it is so easy to go, let me tell you about the moron that came into my office today. Oh, it feels so good to unburden that because, you know, these, sometimes people are so difficult and you just want to go, oh, I can just hardly wait so I can tell them because I'm going to win the who had the stupidest person contest today. Ah, that's sin. That's haughtiness. What do I have that God has not given me? Nothing. My intellect, any ability that I might have is due solely to God. How dare I look down on people that God may not have so blessed? See, these things are easy to slip up on you. They come in unaware, and before you knew it, you're acting like the proud. You're being haughty. What does the Bible say about a haughty look? God abhors it. He abhors the haughty look. But he gives grace to the humble. The humble obtain God's grace. The prouder enemies of God. <clears throat> so, what does it mean to be humble? Well, as I like to do sometimes, I like to look up Greek words. I have a nice Hebrew, Greek, keyword study Bible in the New American Standard. So I looked up, what does it mean to be humble? And that's the word, and forgive me, tapenos? That's what it looks like to me, tapenos. So what does it mean? It means the recognition by a man of his sinfulness, that he is a creature, that he is accountable to a just and holy God, and that he has no merit, a beggar. Hmm. It says a lot like Matthew 5, 3, blessed is the poor in spirit. That's the humble man. Our pride does not want to acknowledge the humbleness that God demands, but our pride will kill us. So, what do we do? 
James graciously puts out this list of several things to do that are very practical. And number one is so easy. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee to you. Submit to God. Let's look at Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every person according to their deeds. Submit to God. Deny yourself. Follow God, no matter what the cost. Line up under God's authority like a soldier or a commander or a slave. A willing, conscious submission to God's authority as the sovereign ruler of the universe. One of the things that kind of helps me try to figure out what it's like to live the life of a Christian, I go back to the time when I was a police officer. When I became a police officer, I became a different person. I was no longer a civilian, but I was a police officer. I wore a uniform and I had to take the instruction of my superiors. I had things that I had to do in my job and I was held to a higher standard than the public. And even when I was out of uniform and off duty, I was still a police officer. I still carried a badge, I still carried a gun, and everything that I did was open to public scrutiny. So I had to follow the rules, I had to follow the leadership of my superiors, I had to obey the law and I had to enforce the law. I was no longer free to do whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it because I was answering to a higher authority and I had given myself willingly to do that. That's the same way I can see as we as Christians. When we submit to God, we basically join the army. God is our commander. We do what God says, we obey him. Now we have a commander that loves us and died for us, which is wonderful, but he's also our commander that we have to take very seriously. And we have to submit to God. And submitting to God is denying ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we have to give our allegiance to God, obey God's command, follow his leadership. And then what does it say after that? But resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This is also in 1 Peter 5 eight. So, we have to take our stand against temptation. This is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is being so close to God, so into the scripture, so communing with God in prayer, so attuned to the preaching of the word and fellowship with other believers, that when sin or temptation to sin comes into your life, you can say, no, I will not. Now, an important distinction here for us to remember is that our sin is forgiven. It is impossible to resist an unforgiven sin. Because if the sin is unforgiven, we are not Christians. If we are not Christians, we don't have the Holy Spirit. We have no way to fight an unforgiven sin. So, what is that hymn? I can't remember what it is, but it says that he breaks the power of canceled sin. Is that it? Canceled sin. So, 
we fight. We say no. We resist the devil. We resist him with memorized scripture. We resist him with prayer. We resist him. We resist him with calling our Christian friends and saying, I'm having trouble. Pray with me. We must take our stand and say in our soul, here's where I stand and I will not back up. Remember Ephesians 2.2. 2. Mike brought that to us last Wednesday. We're either under the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan. There's no middle ground. Before we became Christians, we were under the power of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, and we followed his dictates. Now we follow another. So, as Ephesians 6 says, we need to put on the full armor of God and resist the devil. This is kind of a side note, but as I was studying this, I was thinking about resisting the devil and, and how James tells us that we're all tempted because the temptation comes within us with our the sin that still remains in us, the flesh. And I was thinking, but how did Christ resist? Christ didn't have to resist. He had to resist the devil. All his temptation came from the devil, but he was perfect and holy in God. So he didn't have sin rising up in his members. So that's why the devil was always trying to attack him. Because he was pure and holy. And that's just kind of throwing that out there. I don't know. It doesn't really apply to the text, but it's something y'all can discuss and think about later. But he was tempted as we were by the devil, but he did not have to fight the battle of a sinful, sinful flesh. So, verse 8 tells us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit, resist the devil, come close to God, draw near to God, and he will come close to you. That is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Um, it tells us in Malachi 3, 17, return to me and I will return to you. Zechariah 1, 3 says, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me that I may return to you. And let's look at 2 Chronicles. We turn to Second Chronicles, chapter fifteen. Second Chronicles fifteen, verses one through four. <coughs> Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Adad, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. So throughout the Bible, God says this. It's true. Draw near to God, God will draw near to you. If you're having trouble, if you're fighting, if you're losing, stop. Pray. Meditate. Read. Memorize. Talk to Christian friends. God draw near to him in communion. We talked about the prayer closet last time. The prayer closet is so important. I don't mean, well, actually, 
my wife has a literal prayer closet. She has a closet so big that you can have an office in it. But that's where she actually has the prayer closet she goes to. I, I have my office. But the place alone where you can get with God and commune with Him. And remember, we can spill all our troubles, put all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. But also seek Him. Remember who He is. Look to Him. Look in Scripture. Read the Psalms. Praise Him for who He is, for what He's done. And then God will draw near to you in sweet communion that will help us in all our troubles. So pursue that intimate relationship with God by spending time in His presence. Commune with Him in prayer and Bible reading. That love relationship will happen to you. Okay, let's go back to James 4. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Based on the Old Testament ceremonial washings of the priests, remember how they would dip their hands in there before they would eat? The hands must, must be washed before you approach God. So, how do we wash our hands? Well, let's look at Isaiah 1, 15 through 20. Isaiah 1, 15 through 20. And in fact, I think I might want to le- read a little bit more of that to get the full context of it. <clears throat> So let's start with verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this trampling of my courtyards? Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of an assembly. I cannot endure wrongdoing and the festive assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayers, I will not be listening. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan and plead the widow's cause. Come now and let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, I love that passage. I love that passage. First of all, it tells me that there is nobody, no sin that I've committed that is beyond God's grace. But he also says there's a time when I've had enough. I've had enough. Your worship just sickens me. Sickens me. So you need to wash your hands clean. How? How do you wash your hands and make yourself clean? Remove evil from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. And plead the widow's cause. Back to James 4. 
Cleanse your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There we have double-minded again. The person with one foot in the world and one foot claiming and professing to be a Christian. Unstable in all these ways. Purify your hearts. Symbolizes the inward thoughts, motives, and desires of the heart. So God is talking and washing your hands. Those are the outward actions. Learn to do good. You know, do the outward things that are glorifying and honoring to me. And purify your heart. Change your mind. Saturate your mind with Scripture. Think of God. Meditate on what He's done. And your heart will be pure. Let's look at 1 John 2. 1 John 2. Verse 28. Now little children remain in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous and you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Wait a minute. Hmm. Okay, that doesn't sound right. I'm sorry, I might have written this down wrong. Okay. Um, no? Okay. See how great the love the Father has given us, that we would be called children of God. In fact, we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Okay. I don't know why I wrote that down. I'm very sorry. Um, but then again, it's a good verse for us to all talk to anyway. All right, so we're talking about purifying your hearts, inward thoughts. Well, 1 John 1.19 tells us anyway that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive it, give us. So we purify our hearts by our communion with God. Verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. Ask God to show your sin in contrast to his holiness. And he will throughout the scripture. Only his spirit, his spirit alone can cause true mourning over our sin. And remember, you don't have because you don't ask. But the Bible says that you ask in accordance with his will, he will grant it. So if your prayer is to know, Lord, where am I failing? Where is my sin? He will surely show you so that you can repent of it. And he can give you the spirit that will mourn, that will weep when you see the holiness of God and have you defended a holy God. This is not something to say, okay, well, you know what? I'm sorry for telling that white lie, and I'm sorry for gossiping about Mrs. Johnson, but you know she really did do that, Lord. That's not what I'm talking about. Soul searching where God opens your eyes and you can see your selfishness. And you can see your bitterness, and you can see your anger. And you ask God to show you these things that are, that are not pleasing to him. Your impatience, your greed, your covetousness, and worst of all, your presumption upon his grace. You're ignoring his commands. You going your own way in spite of knowing the way of God tells you to go a different direction. Your outright treasonous rebellious rebellion against the holy God. God will, 
couple, open your eyes to this. And when you see it truly, when you see it truly, you will mourn, you will weep. Because you realize that God is just in sending people to hell. And he would be just to send each of us to hell if it weren't for his grace. That's when our salvation becomes more precious to us. So I'm afraid so there's a lot of people sitting in churches today that don't think truly that they're sinners. I think they sit there and they think, well, I'm pretty good and I'm even better now because I'm going to church. Oh, what danger those people are in. And if we think that way, we're in that danger also. When we come, and it's like it says in Matthew 7, and God says, depart from me. I don't know you, but we did this and we did that, and we're basically good people. I don't know you. Away with you, those who do lawlessness. That should ever be in our mind too. That should ever be in our mind too. It's things like that that give us the healthy fear of God that we need. The healthy fear of God that keeps us looking to him for his grace and his mercy. So it's a balance. The fear of the Lord and the grace of the Lord. And they both are wonderful. They're both wonderful to have. So be miserable and mourn, mourn and weep. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have grown deeply because of what grievous sinners they are. So let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, this means the flippant laughter of those foolishly indulging in the world. And we, you know, I you hear the old Billy Joel song, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. That's kind of what this is talking about. That's the laughter of the world. That's the laughter that is so dangerous. Carefree. I can't remember, I was looking for the verse, but it talks about cows of Bashan that sit there and on their couches and they're drinking and it's just a wonderful life and they're laughing and God says, no, this is an affront to me. Just enjoying life. The world, the world is their throne and they want it. They are lovers of the world. People who give no thought to God, life, death, sin, judgment, or holiness, these are the ones that laugh, but we are to turn our laughter into gloom because we know what we deserve. We know what we are according to the scriptures. Verse 10, when you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and give you honor. That's the New Living Translation. I like that. It says in the New American Standard, Humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. I'm also going to read you out of the Young's Literal Translation of 1898. Be made low before the Lord, and he shall exalt you. So humble yourselves now, rather than fall into the Lord's humbling of the proud. Now is the time to humble ourselves. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Live your life in response to God's presence in your midst, recognizing his total control over you. Now, I'm almost done, but we're going to go a little farther. Look over to James 5, verse 1. And we're going to read 
verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich people, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of our of armies. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuri luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. Again, James picks up the theme of those that love the world, those that live for what the world has, those who, pardon the quote, have their best lives now. Remember what happens to those who have their best lives. Now, who did, who was that told to by Abraham? It's the rich man, the rich man Lazarus. You've had your good things on earth, and now you have your bad. So what does it say in Luke? It says, blessed are those who are hungry now, but woe to you who are well fed, because you will go away hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, because you are mourned. There's woes for those who have their best life now. Very dangerous. So James has shown friendship with the world. Makes you an enemy of God. He's shown that we're in constant temptation and danger, so we need to stay close to God, cling to the cross, cling to his word, and that a constant battle against envy must be waged in the power of the Spirit. <clears throat> envy creates its own worldview by which a person will justify any action in order to secure their wealth. I see this all the time <coughs> in my job. People will basically defraud others and then have the most outlandish excuses. And in their eyes, they think they're justified. Because, as it said, and Mike, we're always going back to <coughs> Ephesians 2. I love Ephesians 2. So their eyes, they're darkened. They don't see. They're dead. And what they do, they think is right. They're following the prince of the power of the air. So, these people who do not heed the warnings of James 4, 1 through 10, James proclaims this horrific judgment. And you know what? I don't see any, any hope for these people. This is what's scary. Come now, rich people. Weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh. This is a horrible judgment that's been declared on the lovers of the world and we need to take heed. <clears throat> so, there is, no, there is no hope for people who do not turn to Christ and their judgment is sure. Now, I kind of debated doing this because this is a Bible study, but I hope nobody objects. But there is a great example of what's being talked about in the book Pilgrim's Progress. And so I would like to read a little bit about this and maybe to help you understand and see a practical example of what James is talking about. Now, I don't know if you've read Pilgrim's Progress or not. It's a, it's a very convicting book. And in fact, this passage that I'm going to read you was so convicting that about four years ago, God used it to, to basically discipline me because I was heading as one 
that had one world, or one foot in the world and one, you know, following God and professing to follow God, yet my heart was following the riches of the world. And in this, God really opened my eyes. And because of this, this is what started me to where I weeped and I mourned for my sin. And I saw for the first time how evil and selfish and angry and, and all the bad things that there were in my life. So I hopefully it will help you too to see. So he's with the interpreter at this castle. No, I'm sorry, I keep walking away from that. And uh, Christian is the main character. And so he says, the interpreter shook his head. No, you must stay until I've shown you a little more. After that, you will be on your way. The interpreter reached and took Christian by the hand and led him to a very dark room where a man sat in an iron cage. The man appeared very sad. His eyes stared downcast at the ground, his hands folded with his finger intertwined. He sighed as if his heart would break. Christian looked at the sad man and to the interpreter. What does this mean? Talk to him, the interpreter pointed to the man in the cage. Christian looked at the man and asked, What are you doing here? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What you what were you once? The man said, I was once an attractive and thriving professing Christian, both in my eyes and the eyes of others. I at one time was totally convinced that I was on my way to the celestial city. I even had joyous thoughts about my arrival there. Well, what are you now? Christian asked. The man let out a sigh. I am now a man of despair and held captive by it just as in this iron cage portrays. I cannot get out. Oh, how depressed I am now because I cannot get out. But what happened? How did you end up in this condition? I neglected to watch and be sober. I loosened the restraints that kept my lust in check. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. With each statement, his voice grew more troubled. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I flirted with temptation, and the devil came to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Christian tore his eyes from the man in the cage and looked to the interpreter. Is there no hope for a man such as this? Ask him, the interpreter nodded towards the man. Christian did as the interpreter suggested and asked the man, Do you have any hope that you will not be kept in the iron cage of despair? The man's eyes stared at the floor again. No, none at all. But why? Don't you know that the son of the blessed is very merciful and compassion? compassionate? I have crucified him again by my life. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness and regarded his blood as an unholy thing. I have acted spitefully to the spirit of grace. Therefore... I have shut myself out of all the promises of God. Now there remains for me nothing but threats, dreadful threats, truthful threats of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour me as an enemy. Why? For what reasons did you bring yourself to this sorry condition? The man's eyes looked up for a moment. For the lust, pleasures, and profits of this world. It was the lure of the enjoyment of these things that I promised myself increasing pleasure. His eyes dropped down to stare at the floor again. 
But now every one of those things bites and snaps at me. They gnaw up my soul like a burning worm. But can't you repent and turn from this despicable condition? The man shook his head slowly. No, for God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to repent. Yes, he is the one who has shut me up in this iron cage. Even if all the men of the world tried to let me out, they would not be able. Remember this man's misery, the interpreter warned Christian, and let this sorry state be an everlasting warning to you. Let it be an everlasting warning to us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your love. We thank you that you are slow to anger. We thank you that you discipline us out of love and do not judge us out of your righteousness. Father, we are in danger here in America. It is our desire to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you, one that reflects your glory. But Father, there's so many things out there. Lord, help us to be aware that everywhere we turn, the world is beckoning us. That our flesh rises up within us and says, I want, I see, I'm proud, I'm self-sufficient. Lord, make us aware and keep us from falling. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us. We thank you that our salvation is not dependent on us because we would certainly use it, lose it. But God, help us not to live a life that is wasted, not to live a life that dissipates. But Father, bless us, guide us, protect us. And Father, we pray for Jerry. We thank you that he's back. And God, is it a fearful thing to stand up here and, and teach your word? Jerry does it every week, Lord. We just ask for so much grace. Lord, give him refreshment when he needs it. Give him a spirit of boldness when it is needed so that he may stand up and proclaim the truth. We thank you that we have him as our pastor. And we pray that we would be sheep that follow and not give him any cause for any pain or trouble. And Lord, we ask that you bring us back again Sunday. And Lord, when we go out in the world for the rest of this week, let us shine brightly for you. For your glory, we pray. Amen.